This afternoon, we are dealing with the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, Your Kingdom Come, which is explained in Lord's Day 48. In connection with that, we will read Luke 12, the verses 1 through 34. And as we read this passage, it pays to, to be sensitive to the kingdom of God, the rule of God in, in the background, whether or not people submit to that in this passage, what the priorities are, how this kingdom will one day manifest itself. You get a real glimpse into that in, in this passage, Luke 12, verses 1 through 34. This is the word of God. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he, that is Jesus, began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why? Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of val more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. 
They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We read also from Lord's Day 48 of the Catechism. Lord's Day 48, page 561. What is the second petition? Your kingdom come. That is, so rule us by your word and spirit that more and more we submit to you. Preserve and increase your church. Destroy the works of the devil. Every power that raises itself against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do all this until the fullness of your kingdom comes, wherein you shall be all in all. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, of all the books that have ever been written, the Bible has to be the most remarkable. What makes the Bible such a remarkable book is that it always goes beyond what you would think. It extends past all human imagination. It outdistances all that we could dream of. The entire book is about how God created the universe simply to reflect His glory. It is about how He created this world as a setting, a stage almost, to live out His covenant relationship with human beings. It's about how He put them on the throne. He crowned them with glory and honor. He gave them dominion over the works of His hands. He put all things under their feet. And the Bible is a story of how they rebelled against him and rejected the calling that he placed on their lives. But that is not the most remarkable part. The most remarkable part is that God wanted his rebellious subjects back in his kingdom. 
He has made that possible through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is now the legitimate heir of all things. Jesus is the heir of God's kingdom. Jesus calls sinners back into his kingdom. That's God's grace. God's grace is the most unexpected thing of all. No one could have ever imagined that God would be that gracious. There are the kingdoms of this world. Yet all of this time, there is a parallel kingdom in existence, which has already come into the world, which surrounds us, which is a part of our lives. And this kingdom will persist when all other kingdoms are destroyed. But what is most remarkable of all are the words of Jesus in verse 32 of our text, that God actually intends to give us the kingdom. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And we'll pay attention to three points. We'll see that this is the undeserved promise of God's reign, the inevitable persistence of God's reign, and the ultimate fulfillment of God's reign. So one of the things that the Bible constantly emphasizes is that the Lord is king over all the earth. The Psalms are full of it. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. In Psalm 50, God says, every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. The world and its fullness are mine. Psalm 97 says that the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. And it goes on to say that the mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. It is a breathtaking thought that there is no part of this universe that God has not created, that does not belong to him, over which he does not exert full authority. It's an incredible thought. God's right to reign over the world he created is a fundamental part of theology. It's even taught in the fourth commandment. We heard it this morning. In six days, the Lord created the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. So it's all the more remarkable that the world continues to exist even though people do not recognize God's reign. You think about it. God would be fully within his rights to wipe all sinners off the face of the earth, and one day he will. The Bible's clear about that too. Transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. Psalm 37, 38. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. Psalm 68. The wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Proverbs 2, verse 22. So that is coming, and yet all this time, he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. We just had rain this past week. It fell on the just and on the unjust. It fell on those who submit to God and those who do not. God does this because his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So the fact that God's kingship is rejected does not mean that he has stopped being king. 
He is still king as he has always been. His kingship is inherent in his rights as the creator. It does not depend on whether we human beings acknowledge it or not. God the Lord is king. He always has been. He always will be. So when we pray the second petition, your kingdom come, we are not in any way suggesting that he is not king right now. But what that prayer is, is a prayer that his kingship would be recognized because God has the right to rule, but he is not recognized as king in the hearts of many people. The creation all around us is crying out for the sons of God to be revealed. It waits for God's reign to be universally recognized. It waits for human beings to to take up the position that they had again so that all the blessings of God's kingship can be experienced again. And so the Bible tells us that even though his kingdom is spiritual, it will one day have a physical manifestation. The whole earth is full of his glory, but his glory is not recognized. But a day is coming when the Lord will be king over all the earth. That's what the prophet said. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one, as in his name will be the only one. So the very phrase, kingdom of God, is already loaded. It is already shaking with the potential of what that actually means. It signifies the eventual end of all of our earthly priorities. It represents a termination of everything that was not part of his kingdom. It prophesies the destruction of all that does not belong. So in that sense, the very phrase, kingdom of God, is already a solemn warning to us not to invest ourselves in the things of this world. Because this world is passing away with all of its desires. The day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed, writes Peter in his second letter. So we should not invest ourselves too heavily in the things of this world and the things that are going to be destroyed. And we know that. But how is that actually working out in practice? Are we not often complacent about these things? And is that not a sign of our weakness? We are utterly incapable of bringing about the kingdom of God by ourselves. We are unable to make it come. We are unable to voluntarily submit. We need divine intervention, and yet we do not deserve it. We share in the guilt of all people on this point, whether we're Christians or not. We cannot bring about the kingdom of God in our own lives, let alone in the lives of the people around us. That's why we need to pray, so rule us by your word and spirit, that more and more we submit to you. That phrase, more and more, is there for a reason. It's because because this is a progressive thing, because there are so many parts of our lives that are not yet submitted to God to his reign. And that is why the gospel is so good, because the gospel says that God is bringing about his kingdom in this world. He is exerting his reign independent of our efforts. Adam sinned. Adam gave up the throne, so to speak. And his failure fundamentally was not just disobedience. His failure fundamentally was a failure to reign. It was disobedience But it was also a failure to reign, a failure to advance the kingdom. 
Those first humans were meant to do what, what this petition describes, to, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to make God's kingdom come. They were meant to be part of bringing about, at the beginning of the Bible, the thing that we see at the end in Revelation, the garden city where God dwells with man. They were meant to be part of bringing that about. But, but they abdicated. They were disobedient. They failed, and all of us have failed ever since. So the whole story of the Bible is a story of how God goes about bringing his kingdom into the world anyway. That's why this petition is so important. And God wants to use the same line of people. And you might wonder, well, why not start over? He did, in a way, with the flood. You end up with this pre-creation chaos again. You got the waters covering the earth. And he renews the world. He cleanses it. But he uses the same line of people because he wants to put the sons of Adam back on the throne, the line of Adam. He wants to, he wants to realize his original intent for mankind. Because even if, even if, Man fails, God does not. God never fails. When he decides to do something, it will happen. His purposes are never thwarted. His intents are never reversed. He is able to do what he wants, and he wants to restore the kingdom that we destroyed. That's how much his kingdom means to him. So then, as we also saw this morning, you, you get to Abraham, when the promises really crystallize, God promises him land, and that land is going to be a small-scale model of what the kingdom of God eventually will look like. It has this description again of Eden, right? A land flowing with milk and honey, the one place in all the earth where you can meet with the living God. And the psalmists knew that. We see that, for example, reflected in Psalm 42, verse 2. The psalmist says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Because he knows the temple is a place where you go to see God. You go to meet with God. And God is going to bring about his kingdom on earth. In Exodus, he's going to use the Israelites to do it. It's not just going to be their kingdom, but his kingdom. He says in Exodus 19, verse 6, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So, so the kingdom of God is meant to be embodied in the people. It was God's promise to them. The nation as a whole was meant to be a fulfillment of the kind of prayer that we find in the second petition. So rule us by your word and spirit that more and more we submit to you. That is what Israel was supposed to be, and they weren't. They rejected God's reign. In Jeremiah 2, verse 7, he says, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. So he hands them over to their enemies. And then the only place on earth that was supposed to be the physical embodiment of the kingdom of God is destroyed. Psalm 79, verse 1, the psalmist laments, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They've laid Jerusalem in ruins, and the people are in exile, and even when they come back, they see it's not the same anymore. The temple is smaller, the glory has gone out, they haven't seen it go back in again. As a nation, they're not going to embody God's reign anymore. They did not deserve the promise of God's reign. But who does? Which one of us does? 
And yet the Lord is persistent. There is this persistence to his, his, his work. When the Lord desires to do something, it will come to pass. And so we see in our, in our second point here, the inevitable persistence of God's reign. When our Lord Jesus was sent into this world, he began his ministry by preaching that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven was near. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven are interchangeable, those two terms. And so it's, it's really quite striking that this was a message that he preached. The kingdom of heaven was something first and foremost of the heart. And he was preaching that the reign of God was embodied in him. So with the ministry of Jesus, the second petition really comes into focus. So rule us by your word and spirit that more and more we submit to you. God's word, as Jesus preached it, was the means by which he was bringing people into the kingdom. And yet, the very people that he preached that message to were the ones who crucified him. How can God bring his kingdom into the world when the very people that he preached it to were the ones who crucified him? In fact, this is one kingdom where the death of the king was necessary in order for the kingdom to exist. Because he had to die in order to enable this kingdom, so to speak, in order to bring these people back, in order to bear the sins of his people. In the end, Jesus was the only subject of the king. Jesus, the man, was the only truly obedient subject of the king who has ever lived. And his obedience is perfect. He was the only one who did bring about the kingdom by his own work. Through faith in him, all people can be brought under God's rule and be reunited with him again. And then what was true of God's people in the past is true of God's people today. You remember that in the Exodus, in the Exodus um, 19, the Jews, the Jewish people, were a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And in 1 Peter 2, verse 5, the apostle writes to the church, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Do you hear that? To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And in Revelation 1, verse 6, it says that Christ has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So through the work of Jesus Christ, the King has become our Father. That's why verse 32 of our reading says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. In Christ, God has become our Father. That means that in Christ, we are co-heirs. If He is our Father, we're heirs together with Christ. Romans 8 verse 17 says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit, that we are children of God and of children, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You see what it says? Fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. So just like in the Old Testament, God shares his kingdom with his people. All of that comes together in Christ, the only legitimate heir who shares his inheritance with us. Through faith we are united to him. And Scripture is clear on this. It says in in Ephesians 1 verse 11, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having predestined according to the purpose of Him who works, 
having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. All of these promises of the Bible, all of the kingdom promises are realized in Christ. Instead of merely inheriting the Old Testament land, believers will inherit the whole earth. Do you realize that? Jesus promised that himself in Matthew 5, verse 5. He says, the meek will inherit the earth. You have to see that against the background of this kingdom theology. Today, we're still confronted with our own inability in bringing about the kingdom of God. And again, verse 32 is, is really very important here. He says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He calls us a little flock. So that word little points to our vulnerability. We're reminded of, it also points to our, our insignificance. And we're reminded of the words of Acts 20 verse 29 where the Apostle Paul writes, I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. So, so he's saying the, the, the church is, is a key part of, of this kingdom and this church is under risk. There's a real risk for the church. Satan hates the church. False teachers exploit the church. Conflict divides the church. Everything is arrayed against the church and against God's kingdom. Everything is opposed to God's kingdom. Everything is contrary to this simple, way, this simple prayer, your kingdom come. That's why we pray, preserve and increase your church. Destroy the works of the devil. We pray for the church. We pray for the office bearers. You do, don't you? Do you pray for your office bearers? Do you pray for your word elder? Do you pray for his wife? Do you pray for each other? Do you do this as congregation? Surely you must pray for each other if you take Scripture seriously. And we trust in the persistence of God's reign. If you're part of God's church, you do not need to be afraid. Jesus promised the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's a persistence to the kingdom of God. It will outlast all other kingdoms. Our reading presents God as the one who continues to reign. It represents his kingdom as outlasting all the others. It represents his authority as final. This kingdom supersedes all other kingdoms. It has the last word and everything. It is both coming and already here. Coming in the sense of the final judgment. Already here in the sense that the citizens of that kingdom, who here on earth are the church members, know what to say to the rulers of this world. This kingdom is eternal, while our little kingdoms, like the fool, the rich fool, are temporary. You know, it's, it's very striking that, that um, this chapter that we read it starts with, with an allusion to the kingdom of God. It ends with an allusion to the kingdom of God. And in between you have this whole section on material possessions. You get this, this man who listens to Jesus speak about the kingdom and then starts to go on about his inheritance and earthly inheritance. You have the section about the rich farmer. The farmer who, who had everything invested in, in this world and then had to leave that world. Happens all the time. Our little kingdoms are temporary, and, and, and around that is, in the chapter here as well, you see the outlines of this big 
kingdom that surrounds it, that penetrates into these little kingdoms, that has a final word over all of it. Do you see how, how, how this works? So what are we praying for when we pray your kingdom come? We're praying that the honor of God would be acknowledged, that the power of God would be manifested, that the Son of God would be worshipped. We want to see this kingdom break out into the world around us more and more. And it begins with you. It begins with yourself because this kingdom is in its very essence spiritual. Therefore, you can never pray this prayer apart from a total submission to Christ. Else your very prayers become a form of rebellion. The kingdom is characterized by obedience. And so if your desire really is to see God's glo- God glorified, then you're not just going to pray this, you're going to do this. You're going to submit to him. God laid his claim on us. He said we belong in his kingdom. So what are we doing with that? Are we responding in faith to that? Are we obeying what he says? Or do we rebel? Because those who persist in sin will not inherit the kingdom. The Bible is very clear on that. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 10, Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5, verse 19 through 21 says that the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And he says, I warn you as I warned you before. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5 verse 5 says you may be sure of this. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. You know, this is really clear. This is really clear. You may be sure of this, he says. One day the fullness of God's kingdom will come. There will be no room for these things. And therefore, we must turn to Christ while there is time. Because one day we will witness the ultimate fulfillment of God's reign. All people will witness this, whether they believed or not, whether they wanted it or not, whether they looked forward to it or not. All people will one day witness the ultimate fulfillment of God's reign. And we'll look at that last. So in the second petition, we pray that God would continue to expand his kingdom. And the the catechism ends by saying, do all this until the fullness of your kingdom comes, wherein you shall be all in all. But there's no time defined there. Why, Why does he not bring about the fullness of his kingdom right now? He could bring his kingdom into the world in an instant. He could do it right now while we sit here. Judgment could be upon us. Judgment day could could be here this instant. And if sin is so offensive to God, why does he not deal with everything now? 
Why does he not do this? Why is his kingdom so... Why does it take such a long time to get to what the Bible presents to us? Well, the reason is because he still has more people to bring into his kingdom. He wants to bring in the full number of the elect. He wants every citizen to be in. Belgian Confession, Article 37 says, We believe, according to the word of God, that when the time ordained by the Lord, but unknown to all creatures, has come, and the number of the elect is complete, the number of the elect is complete, our Lord Jesus Christ will come from heaven bodily and visibly as he ascended with great glory and majesty. The moment that the last elect person converts, the king will come in his glory. He will not wait a moment longer. For all of creation is crying out, is groaning for the king to come. The angels in heaven themselves are longing to see God honored in his glory. As in heaven, so on earth. They're looking forward to it. They're longing for it. They want to see him vindicated. And so we should stop thinking about salvation in such individual terms. As we confessed, we are part of of the church of all times and all places. It is in communion with the church, in communion with our fellow church members that we await the coming of the kingdom. And so... If you are impatient, you are implicitly suggesting that history should end after you. That's like saying, well, I'm here now, so let's carry on with it. And, and that's taking the small, self-centered view. We should look at this in terms of God's glory, God's kingdom, God's people, God's elect. The last one could be born tomorrow, could come to faith Soon, or it might still be a long time, we don't know. But we should see ourselves as, as a part of this coming of God's kingdom and, and pray together with all other church members that this would happen, that his church would be preserved and increased, the work of the devil be destroyed, that every power that raises itself against him and every conspiracy against his holy word would be would be dashed until the fullness of the kingdom comes. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Does that fill you with joy? This promise that the Father has seen fit to give you, 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 the kingdom. When you know that you have a better kingdom coming, then you start to see things in proportion. And surely, if there was ever a time For people to learn that, it should have been this time, the last few years, that we should have seen things in proportion, that we should have seen that even the greatest earthly power is nothing compared to the kingdom of God. And we share in that. We're reminded of that in Hebrews 12, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So gratitude, reverence, awe, those are the parts of the life and the prayer life of a Christian. And those words, by the way, in Hebrews were written to people who had lost a lot for the kingdom. They needed to be encouraged with the perspective of Scripture. They needed to pray for God's kingdom to come. They needed to be encouraged again to look forward to it with joy. They needed so much encouragement that the the writer of Hebrews wrote a whole letter to them 
And maybe, maybe we need that too sometimes. We just need this encouragement again. We just need to be recalibrated. That's why we come here every week to just get our heads straight again while we look at these things. That's why we need to continue to consider the Bible as the most remarkable book that has ever existed because this is what it tells us. It teaches us. It's the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. It reveals the undeserved promise of God's reign. It encourages us to see the inevitable persistence of God's reign in our day-to-day life. And it enables us to anticipate the ultimate fulfillment of God's reign. May that fulfillment come soon. Amen.